Welcome back to Media Democracy. It's a podcast about media, politics and the politics of the media. I am Tom Mills and I'm joined as ever by Dan Hind. Hi, Tom. Hello. And say hi. And not only to me, but also to the listeners. Well, the listeners, you know, they're (laughs) not alone. They're going to have to earn my my attention. (laughs) Dan will ignore you until um, until he considers you to be worthy of his attention. (laughs) Uh, and I, I'm sorry to say that also we don't have a guest today, so I'll do my best to make up for Dan's uh, rudeness over the course of the show. Yeah, you can, um, you can be good cop. Be good. <laughs> exactly, I'll be good cop. Um, so we're going to be talking about a few things today. Obviously, we're going to be talking about the media and the politics of the media, but a few things we wanted to cover, things that have been happening and um, our usual sort of lukewarm takes on these matters. We wanted to talk a little bit first about uh, Facebook and the platforms and news. And then we're going to talk for a bit about Auntie, of course. These are all favourite topics of the show. And then on to Peter Oborn's article, which has been published over at Open Democracy, which was discussing the role of anonymous sources in lobby journalism and committed the absolutely phenomenal faux pas of naming specific journalists. So anyway, that's your preview. Dan, uh, let's start with, with Zuckerberg, one of my favourite human beings. What's he been up to then? Oh, well, he's, he's got a new haircut for one thing. And, uh, <laughs> and that's great. Av- avid Zuckerberg watchers will have noticed. Um, well, as you say, we, we specialise in the lukewarm take. And on Friday, um, Facebook rolled out uh, to a few thousand of its um, users a uh, Facebook news um, a, a, a element to its to its um, it, to its app to its phone app, and this marks, I think, another sort of stage in in an incremental process by which the platforms have changed their um, relationship with, to news and current affairs. If you go back a few years, um, uh, Zuckerberg himself. Uh, was very kind of firmly entrenched in a kind of Silicon Valley mentality um, that um, they were just a, a platform um, and they they offered a space where people could do what they liked. If, if people wanted to talk about politics and they wanted to share uh, journalism, that was very much up to them. And it wasn't really, really for Facebook to start getting involved in moderation. Um, in August 2016, which is obviously just before uh, the presidential election um he said to a university audience in italy he said we are a tech company not a media company mm-hmm. um and since then i think facebook has been on as they say a journey uh, prompted in in ver- to a very considerable extent by um revelations about uh, the conduct of the presidential election in the us um where it's become clear that um very sophisticated targeting techniques were being used to um, uh, to try and activate uh, voters and trying to demobilize uh, other other voters and so on. And uh, there's also been a slightly hysterical um, set of concerns expressed about foreign subversion, particularly by uh, Russia 
during the, the election. Um, so you get to 2018 um, and um, Zuckerberg is in front of the Senate uh, in April uh, 2018. And he says then we feel responsibility for the content of our platforms. Um, and uh, th and then as I, as I, since since then they've they've gone on and started to work with fact checkers um they are looking again at the way that they're constantly looking at um the way they moderate content zuckerberg was in in front of the um a congressional committee last week being absolutely tormented by alexandra um ocasio cortez it's worth yeah, worth, I saw looking, that, yeah. worth looking at that exchange um so there is a kind of a as i say a sort of um a process by which facebook is trying to reposition itself as a responsible steward of um the news uh, and current affairs um space yeah i think this is the context of this i guess is important i mean well Dan's far too humble to say I told you so, but I do remember having a conversation with you a while back about this this whole process as it was un unfolding as being, OK, we can see pretty much what's going to happen here, which is a, a, a gradual jostling and then negotiation between sections of the state, the legacy media and the platforms. I mean, it's very clear that's what's happened, hasn't it? And I think, you know, you mentioned like the hysterical response to, um, you know, notions of Russian subversion and so on. I mean, it seems pretty clear to me that what we're seeing now in terms of the political response and the way which sort of the platforms are kind of negotiated this is is exactly what you pointed to there, which we it's a negotiation between those different players, including the secret state, which I think, you know, isn't getting mentioned that much in discussions. But I think, you know, in terms of like the, the significance, the exaggerated significance of, yeah, the, the United States geopolitical rivals, it's pretty clear that that's that's you know, behind the scenes, we're seeing a, this this meeting of um, interest between the platforms and the legacy media and the spooks. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I do. I mean, I would say that the spooks got in early and very hard. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think it's, you know, one of the one of the sort of frustrating things you hear in sort of general chatter about the platforms is, though, they, they're too powerful for national states. There's nothing that anyone can do about them. Mm. Um, the reality is if, if um, the NSA or GCHQ turn up at your office and explain that you're, they're going to have all your data, they're just going to have all your data. Um, and there's been absolutely no real resistance from Google or Facebook or any, any of the other digital companies on that front. I mean, yeah. in that sense, in that sense, they they are wholly owned subsidiaries um of of the secret state where i think there was a real tension was in the relationship between uh, elected representatives and the platforms yeah and as you say between legacy media um and the platforms and the kind of broken relationship between political elites elected uh, uh, elites um and 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 quote big media you know the, the broadcasters and the big national newspapers and so on yeah that relationship which really situates the, the, the political in what politicians say is the political um, <clears throat> was really disrupted by the platforms um, and I think has driven a lot of the, the, the sort of mainstream animus in the political class uh, against Facebook. Mm. So, yes, we're seeing we're seeing a, a process playing out where. Um, the, the the big the big digital players are becoming 
um, you know, they're, they're, they're accepting their responsibilities in a, a new media regime. Um, and, you know, the, the news, the news uh, element that Facebook has introduced is, is a neat sort of reflection of that in that they're starting to pay publishers to appear on their platform. Again, they're feeling their way. They don't know. They don't know how to do it. They don't know who to pay or how much to pay. Um, it's all very much um, up, 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 up in the air. But there will be some sort of divvying up of the advertising spoils yeah. to maintain a um, an apparently you know, plausibly independent media um, sector um, that operates to a very considerable extent um, on the platforms and is in in very kind of important ways structurally dependent on them. And the other thing to flag up at the moment, um, Google's changed its its algorithm in, in so it's changed how search results for uh, news stories will be um, ordered, and they're trying to favour original reporting. Now, that sounds like a noble idea, but obviously that will tend to favour um, big news organisations and it will tend to downgrade um, organisations that really comment on news, that try and bring an alternative analysis to news content, whether from a you know broadly left or right wing perspective. Mm. We, don't, we have no idea what sort of impact that will have. Um, because the algorithms are so opaque, but it's clear that they're trying. Google themselves, they're much much cannier operators than Facebook. Um, they're much less likely to trip up and end up um, in the spotlight in the way that um, Zuckerberg seems to find himself. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's it's just because of um, Cambridge Analytica and all of that, or do you think it's it's broader? I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I think they, I think there is a sense that as businesses, Facebook is just more um more more visible um google has sort of um has become so integrated with the online experience that you often don't really think that you're don't really think about using um that you're using google products yeah um it's such a kind of broad array of assets that they have i mean to some extent youtube has run into this into similar kinds of static to facebook um mm. over the kind of hosting of extreme content i mean yeah. that the, the algorithm there is an absolute rabbit hole to to hell you know it's bad they, isn't it it's like i mean like, i don't i don't like it when people like go on about algorithms like making people more like radical and all of that because i think a lot of it is very impressionistic but it's sort of it's pretty striking with youtube like i mean just anecdotally it probably only takes about like i mean a lot of people say this so i think it's not often journalists you know like you'll do research on like something on like the alt-right or something or you start with like richard dawkins and yeah before you know it <laughs> it's just quite like <laughs> Richard Dawkins kind of musings on like um you know religious culture to like yeah white supremacist in the stage of like four days or something uh, I mean it's kind yeah. of nuts like I guess they're all like I mean this is the thing we never know what their algorithms are but I mean they're all they're all based on like yeah keeping keeping attention and engagement aren't they so I suppose they 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 must be just sort of judging um what it is that keeps you intensely engaged and it is yeah, one one right. video yeah. after another and going down you know uh, aspire being red pilled as they say into some kind of subculture but yeah, no right. it's funny yeah. that it's funny that i wonder why youtube's particularly notable for that i mean i suppose it could be the nature of the content perhaps Do you think that they you know it's it's got it's got that kind of yeah per person talking to camera maybe it's just got a lot of that material like more than 
um, Facebook-based still. I don't, or do you think it's actually the nature of the algorithm? And we're just speculating, of course. But yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, you know, go back. You know, <clears throat> it, we, it's clear that, as you say, the name of the game is engagement, um, and the name of the game for Facebook is, and and for YouTube, I'm sure, is is sort of user experience. Um, and for a long time, they were kind of like, well, as long as you're here, and as long as you keep clicking. Um, then we've, we're not really bothered about um, what you're engaging with. And we can kind of be, um, as uh, Sushana Zuboff describes it, you can be content agnostic. Mm. Um, I think what we'll see is a move towards um, the platforms working with partners in major media um, so that the major media themselves can produce engaging content, like optimized, as it were, for the platforms. Yeah. But that doesn't get them basically doesn't cause reputational damage to um, to Facebook or, or YouTube or whoever else it is. And I think, you know, you'll still obviously be able to find all kinds of content on there, but it will be marginalized. And yeah. this is actually I think, you know, I, I think it's important to stress the extent to which the emerging digital regime will kind of reproduce features of the old print and broadcast regime in the sense that like if you really wanted to get your hands on um far right material or anarchist material or you know material that was outside of the 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 sort of um the the agreed common sense of the major media you could do it right there was no sort of outright censorship but it took effort and there were these structural impediments to those outlets growing um, they couldn't get advertising. Yeah, I I went to talk like a little while back with um David Renton, you know, who who writes a lot on British fascism, and he was talking about the sort of different levels of engagement in the subculture that you needed to go through to get your hands on particular literature. So you know, you sort of start off with the stuff which is basically the same as the Daily Mail, and you know, go from one meeting to another, and then you get yourself on a new mailing list or whatever. And I guess, yeah, the difference is with this is that you can do that pretty quickly on youtube if you seek it out but then they're trying to kind of reinstate that distinction aren't they basically between yeah the margins and the mainstream and and a lot of the stuff they write they're pr- they're pretty explicit about it you know they a lot of people just come out and say look um these are legitimate news organizations i.e the the big um multinationals and the big broadcasters like the bbc and you know this this website is it's not a news organization and it, it seems like the rationale there is basically who are the dominant market players. I mean, it doesn't seem like that. That is the rationale because actually when you get down to it, yeah. it's very difficult to define what these things are. And the other thing is, and I don't think we should forget I mean, the fact that like, we've not really mentioned like fake news particularly, but we can come on to that um, with the fake news in, the, in the, the legacy media or whatever. But the other thing is, you know, this whole thing of fake news is just bullshit. Like, I mean, the, the, A, as loads of people have pointed out, there's loads of fake news in, in the, the legacy providers. And B, the, the, the volume and significance of fake news, according to every empirical study that's been conducted, is tiny, which makes yeah. you, you know, so, it, I mean, it just comes back to this, this question of, of what's really going on here. And it is about... I mean, I guess, like, just to pick up on what you were saying before, they, they if the platforms want to um, basically, you know, attract engagement and they want to manage their reputation and the legacy media players want a piece of the pie, don't they? I mean, that's basically... Yeah, the... I think that will be the emerging deal. Yeah. Uh, will be, um, they, you know, the, their engineers will work with um, legacy media operations and explain 
like what kinds of content will fly, what won't, how to optimize content um, for shareability and so on. I couldn't imagine the algorithm is this published in the Daily Mail or by somebody else? <laughs> it would be that difficult to run either. You could just simple question: Has it been produced by a large media company? If has yes, it been re- produced by a licensed crank or an unlicensed crank? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Has it been um, produced by um yeah someone who works for a billionaire crank? Yeah, yeah. Or, um, is it just your 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 regular um your regular uh, Joe or Joanna crank? Um, and it is important, like it's important to to stress just how much of a right wing crank someone like Rupert Murdoch is. You know, yeah. the idea like these Times journalists who sort of get on their on their stand on their dignity and talk about what an august publication they work for and so on. I know it's crazy. Mur, Mur, you know, in another world, Murdoch would have been a kind of you know the sort of the cliche of a of a basement dwelling sort of um militia man crank i mean he's just you say that but didn't he work his way up from being the son of a newspaper owner all the way to being also a newspaper owner uh, yeah. the sheer, for the, for the sheer force of his uh it's the sheer force of his accommodation with the far right in america <laughs> um and the far right as well in the uk of course yeah not just america also australia let's not forget he bravely sided with the far right in all the countries he operated in yeah and, um, against the elites and managed to parlay that into um yeah power and um uh and expansion i mean you know jo- i mean joking aside i mean you know murdoch is one of the key players in in fermenting um completely fake um paranoia about soviet influence in central america and south america uh in the 1980s and that's one of the one of the ways in which um uh, american counterinsurgency campaigns in that region are justified to the the bulk of the American public. And what those counterinsurgency campaigns were, they were genocidal campaigns against indigenous people. Um, and but they were given ideological cover by by Murdoch and his allies in the right wing press in the United States. And the idea that someone like him and the kinds of news cultures that he's been responsible for promoting constitute like the opposite of fake news. Is, is, is actually sort of, you know... The other thing that pisses me off about this is whenever people discuss Murdoch, like, and this is kind of a cliche that you often get from British journalists, is like, the thing is, Murdoch's not ideological like the old, you know, press barons. Um, he's not a propagandist. He's a businessman. And you hear that all the time. I remember, like, um, Nick Davis saying that quite often. He's like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, it, it's very clear from, like, all of the political biographies that get published that even though he has like a willingness to engage with all sorts of political actors that broadly fit his politics. I mean, he does have a a pretty obvious political project. This is like, you you kind of wonder what they have in mind. I suppose they're thinking of like Rothermere, aren't they? And sort of contrasting that with like a much more kind of, I suppose, ideologically kind of coherent little Englandness or something. I don't know. I don't know what they have in mind sometimes. That's it is hard to tell. I think partly they don't really appreciate how marginal the UK is to Murdoch's kind of worldview. Um, you know, if you, it, it, Murdoch trades in Nixonian resentment, um, uh, and that's his. You know, that's one of his key sort of ideological. Yeah, and he he probably feels that genuinely himself, doesn't he? That's right. Think, like I, clips I, of him as a young man, it's pretty clear that that is you know, very close to his heart, that, that resentment. I mean, we saw, I've sort of mocked him for that 
anti-elite stuff but actually that was a, a genuine kind of conservative impulse in that period that he rose in the uk wasn't it yeah that's right i think he it's the idea of the the sort of the vigorous outsider who knows better than the um the ruling class what their interests are which you know mm. cory robin talks about very interestingly in the reactionary mind yeah about you know this is where the real um energy of conservatism come from so in that sense i think he's a nixonian conservative i think his i think his ideological commitments dovetail very neatly with his business interests um by by acting as a um uh you know as a vocal supporter of reaganite uh revanchism in the 1980s he that's how he builds his his um his business and builds his sort of political support in america where he comes you know as an outsider um and is able over the course of um 10 15 years to become a major player in in hollywood and in television and so on so i i think it's in, yeah i mean i think you could say that he's ideological in a in a, in a slightly different way from the rothermere's or the, the beaver brooks or whoever yeah but idea that he you know the idea there's some sort of cordon sanitaire between what he really thinks and his businesses is, is for the birds that's just not that's not what's going on at all yeah and it's kind of a weird i mean i suppose you know interest like commercial interest can have a certain disciplining character of their own can't they but if the thing is if you are a business tyrant like you you you're you're able to form you know the bit your business is your empire i mean you know that's that's the parlance that people use isn't it a business empire and you know, with with men like Murdoch, it's pretty clear that that's I mean, you, and you can again, you can see it from the actually from the biographical accounts that journalists produce, you know, working under him, that, that that's how he operates. You know, he, he has his point man or woman in some cases who mm-hmm. he knows will be share or be like, you know, completely attentive to his politics and his business interests. I mean, like you say, they dovetail, don't they? Yeah, they but, do. Um, that's, you know. To the extent you could talk about him as a um, a talented businessman, I think it it's because he's perfectly you know he's he's at one with what he's doing. Mm. Um, but yeah, his his anyway we can we we will talk we can talk about him another time. But we should do we can do, we should actually do a whole show on Murdoch because I don't it, think we've but, ever really got stuck into the Murdoch Empire very much. I mean partly because. You know that that's done by a lot of other people. So I guess you know we've chosen to focus. Oh no, we did we did early on an episode on the sun actually. We did like, we specifically. Did a really great on the sun. I actually edited a biography of uh, Murdoch by Michael Wolfe when I was at Random House. Oh, did you? Was it I good? Did. Um, let's talk about it in another episode. <laughs> um, but so um, available to buy. Available <laughs> hangs a tail. Now we can. This is a very neat segue in, into the into the the lifting of the veil. Oh no, we're going to talk about we're going to talk about the BBC first, and, and it's a very off- neat segue to something we're not going to talk about. <laughs> I was almost competent. <laughs> so smooth. Um, yeah, no, we were going to talk about we we weren't even supposed to be talking about um, Murdoch. We were going to talk about about three things: um, Zuckerberg, Facebook. Uh, before, and actually, before we do, before we leave um, Murdoch and the kind of legacy press coming into an arrangement or an accommodation with the platform, yeah. I think it's really important to stress like. One of the one of the key things that, that um, Facebook harp on is this idea of fact checking. Mm. So they're, they're doing they're doing kinds of lash ups with fact checking operations. I think one of them is the International Fact Checking Network. Um, and the idea is that there that the responsibility resides in getting the facts right. Right now, obviously, the facts are like an important element 
in um, in news. But most of what's interesting in political life isn't in some simple way factual. Right. The interesting stuff is like, what, what, do, what do we actually mean by particular terms? Yeah. Or like, what are people really like? Um, you know, how do institutions really work and so on? And these aren't really they aren't amenable to simple sort of yes, no answers in the way that, you know, did so and so make a speech on this day or that day. Right. These simple facts, it's an important element in reporting, but but actually the content, you know, the, the substance of politics is about what we mean by democracy, for example, right? And that's mm. not actually, that's not a simple factual question. What do we mean by money? Like, you know, what is money is a question which which is open to a huge number of, of contending answers. Yeah. But it's not the same sort of question as how much money have you got in your pocket? Right. Mm. These different kinds of questions. Um, so the idea that we can we can have a gold standard of um, politically relevant information just through fact checking um, is, I think, a really dangerous delusion. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. And I think, you know, it's one of the problems that you get, obviously, with um, BBC journalism, because B- the BBC, I mean, sometimes it annoys people when they say this, or, but the BBC is generally accurate um, and it's generally impartial in, in the sense that it means in the major- of that term in the majority of its coverage. But th- that is a very different question as to compared to like how capable is the BBC as an institution in describing and help us understand the ways in which our society works and the way in you know the place that our country has in the world. I mean, on the latter question, I think the BBC is just an appalling institution, and I, I, I mean, like it, it 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 just can't do that. Now, that's not because it's getting the facts wrong. It's because yeah. the the actual arrangements of facts and the ways in which they need to be balanced and explained basically means that when it comes to those key questions, it's extremely difficult for anybody working at the BBC to actually produce a report that isn't going to get you in hot water. I mean, we said, um, Dan and I said before we started recording, we we talk um, briefly about the um, Naga Manchetti case, which was, um, we were off air at the time, but the scandal which um, I mean, I I suppose it lasted for about a week where the BBC's um, editorial board, which re- which reviews like questions of impartialities and complaints and so on. Um, I think it's called the Executive Editorial Committee or the Editorial. I should have really uh, made a note of this before we started. It's, it slipped my mind. But um, Editorial something committee. Do you know, Dan? Do you yeah. know what I'm talking about? When you start talking about um, co- committees, I tend to say <laughs> slightly. So no, I did, I I've left my uh yeah my my diagram of the BBC bureaucracy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you'll, have to, you'll have to refer um, to the BBC d- d- diagram tattoo that you've got. <laughs> yeah, I should. I should have yeah. it on my arms, shouldn't I? For any events. Um. Anyway, like um, Manchester, who's a BBC presenter and and journalist, was ruled against for making a remark on air uh, about well, it, it it was around a discussion about um when Donald Trump had told um, Ocasio-Cortez and our other left-wing politicians in the States that they should go home to the drug-ridden countries that they came from, which is obviously just a plainly racist remark. I mean, and anyone who implies that it isn't is just 
living in a parallel universe. Anyway, there was a sort of um, backwards and forwards on there. I'm sure people will remember this because it was all over the news for a week. Um, and Manchetti just simply remarked that that was, a, she didn't even say that what Trump said was racist. She just said the phrase, you should go home, has been used against her and it's clearly racist. Uh, and in, 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 for some reason, the BBC then thought that this was a violation of impartiality. And then she got censored for it. And by the end of the week, uh, there was a big hoo-ha, rightly. And then Tony Hall, the director general, intervened from on high and said, no, this is fine. Um, you know, we're not impartial when it comes to racism or whatever. And it's quite interesting because I think this has led to all kinds of, uh, well, it's one of a series of just total clusterfucks, bureaucratic clusterfucks at the BBC, which puts the BBC in the firing line. And I think it's dispirited a lot of people. Um, Emily Bell... Uh, wrote a piece based uh, for the Guardians or sort of questioning, you know, what on earth has happened at the corporation. Um, so, so this has all been going on, and I think there's a big sort of debate as to, you know, what the hell we do about the BBC. And obviously, Dan and I have our ideas about that. The one thing that I wanted to to mention here was some reports which have become available because Ofcom, which now regulates the BBC. Uh, had had conducted this review into the BBC's uh, news and current affairs output and produced a whole range of documents, which you which you can find online, and um, it 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 features their uh, content analysis conducted by Cardiff, which uh, Cardiff University, which is a sort of leading uh, school of empirical research on the BBC's output. Um, not it, it, in my view it's it's not it's not a terribly interesting piece of work partly because the remit was to do with the the range of topics that the BBC covers so there's basically they, they were kind of asked to look at you know what kind of content is the BBC producing what range of topics is it's covering is it right. is it using like hard news or soft news so basically they had this kind of you know distinction between yeah like politics and international affairs on the one hand and like local news and celebrity on the other you know so they were looking at the BBC and comparing it to other media outlets so you know there's some interesting there's some interesting bits and bobs in there to do with I so the BBC has a lot of like in you know hard news compared to uh some of the commercial rivals mm-hmm. although the uh Channel 4 had more of it than the BBC um and the Guardian had more than the BBC Online, so those are like, you know, the relatively more kind of highbrow or serious kind of news publications. But the BBC is kind of closer to them than you know, like Channel Channel Four or um, or, or Sky. And I mean, as you say, it's it's interesting to sort of reflect on on the content as well as the category a bit, because you know, I've been really struck listening to Radio Four this last week about how much political c- coverage. In, on the on BBC Radio Four certainly is a is is really a, a sort of displacement activity. It's like we can't talk about political ideas, we can't talk about interests, we can't talk about politics in some like meaningful way. So why don't we talk about how hard it is to juggle living in London and in the constituency home with a couple of MPs? Mm. Or why don't we talk about like the culture of of Westminster in some other way. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's like endless sort of repetition of parliamentary manoeuvres, endless sort of um, engagement with with politicians as personalities. Yeah. Rather than just like what is well, like, what are the choices facing the country right now, right? What yeah. you know, 
whose who's policy proposals make sense? Right? It's kind of interesting, like the, the content analysis, I mean, one of the things that surprised me, and I suppose it's good, is that they found that the coverage of the Conservative leadership election did actually deal with the substantive policy differences between the players. But actually, if, if I recall this correctly, that was less true of the Brexit coverage, for example. And they did know that that was often portrayed by the BBC in terms of like domestic, um, yeah, political jostling, like exactly the sorts of um, well, things that you describe. Right. But the thing is, like this, this particular piece of work just doesn't really get into that. So like at the very end of the executive summary, it sort of says, oh, these would be, you know, this raises a lot of important questions about the range and depth of BBC reporting. So they say, for example, what are the range of political actors that appear outside of election time? How yeah. far should coverage of political, economic, social affairs be about events rather than policy issues? Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, th- 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 that's where I thought, yeah, well, this is the meat of the matter, right? Like this, this is really what I'd be um, interested to find out. Um, yeah. And but rather than that, it does spend a lot of time describing, okay, this is the volume of say political stories. This is the volume of yeah. environmental yeah. stories and all that. So like that sort of old version of news values you know what is making the news um and it's not that that's not important it's just that like in of itself it's not really telling you the important questions about the bbc's relationship to power it it raises really interesting questions about balance doesn't it because if like what what would it be like if balance was like intellectual parity or you know parity treatment for different schools of thought about say you know political economy or you know britain's place in the world like foreign policy and so on like what what does intellectual parity look like where you could actually have a debate between you know the kinds of people that we talked about with dave waring you know the whole you know the 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 upholders of the british ideology a kind of post-imperial or quasi-imperial or still imperial ideology about britain's place in the world with 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 one of their ideological opponents right yeah that's that strikes me as being political coverage right yeah but three people on a panel on newsnight talking about how great britain is is not it's not serious you know what i mean it's just not it's not actual it's not actually political it's just reproducing a kind of version of this is normal there are minor disagreements within this like maybe we're not quite as awesome as we should be um that's the kind of quality of the debate or the, the extent of the debate rather than what the fuck are, what the fuck are we doing in the world right yeah what what, what is britain for when it goes overseas <laughs> what is it actually doing rather than this kind of warm bath of elite consensuality which which as you say in this in this sort of survey would just appear as Oh, aren't we good? You know, yeah, well, it's a really interesting question, you know, when you start to get into concretely how this works, because I, I mean, I, I, th- I said I think I said just to you the other day, but we should do a, a show on what impartiality really means like in practice and how it relates to balance and so on, because it's something I've been thinking about a bit. And I, I, uh, I read a piece which was by I forget his name. I think it was actually by who was the guy who uh, used to edit the Today programme at the time of the Iraq war? who then I think he he then headed uh, the BBC College of Journalism for a while. Uh, oh, uh, is it Jones? Miriam? No, 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 no. Um, Oh, Christ, this is the second thing I forgot. Uh, anyway, uh, it will come back to me. But like he, he had this uh, he had this piece in um, 
uh, on what impartiality meant. And the thing is, like, and it was kind of designed for, like, how you would teach, you know, like, journalism graduates mm-hmm. uh, how, how to do impartiality. And the thing was, it's, it's, it's actually quite sensible. Like, it, it, it was saying, look, it, this isn't just about political balance. You need to ha- actively try and understand issues and represent a range of opinion. And you need to make discriminatory decisions as mm-hmm. to what the valid opinions are and aren't, right? Mm-hmm. But the thing is, there's even there, there's this kind of tension that, that operates between deciding this is a valid opinion because the person is in the position of power or this is a valid position because the person has a position of authority or, or or it makes sense do you know what i mean and in yeah, the case of exactly right and, and the problem you know the, the the massive problem we have here kevin marsh dan kevin marsh okay to me. like if you were starting from <laughs> do these ideas are these ideas factually correct like do these ideas have some sort of um basis in reality right i don't want to sound in, i don't want to sound partial tom but you'd have to rule the conservative party out right it's just it it peddles fantasy yeah, we fa- we fact check them thoroughly. <laughs> we've, uh, we've given them three Pinocchios out of a possible three, right? They are complete bullshit artists. Yeah. But, if you're, but if you're saying, well, yes, granted, they are bullshit artists. Obviously, they lie about everything. But they're also like the governing parties. Therefore, they yeah. have to have a place at the table. That completely, basically, that fact, to my mind, throws the idea of impartiality as any sort of intellectual exercise out the window. Well, this is the thing. And we could say the same thing about the way that they treat the the newspapers, you know, which a lot of people complain about, but they still do it. It was like, <laughs> and let's go and see about what the, what the papers say. I'm like, well, this now, the Daily Mail, which is well known for fabricating, <laughs> yeah. fabricating news reports, makes the claim that da, 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 da. I mean, like, yeah. well, if they did that, like, you know, the Daily Mail would be like, Sorry, what the fuck? Like, yeah. <laughs> you just you just said that we we completely fabricate stories or like we put misleading slants on things or that we're driven by this like you know basically fanciful elite agenda. Um, and like, yeah, well, yeah, that's that's an accurate description of, <laughs> that of what, <laughs> that's what you yeah. do. It would be they, actually it they, would it would it, we have an obligation to report you know this arrangement or I think, of, well, well, I think interestingly I think that one of the one of the reasons why um uh Jonas is so kind of shitty to um marginal players um and they say you don't check your facts but you know the, the way that they attack people like say the canary or whoever because you they don't do the you know the fact checking that we do and they don't they're not serious and it's it's a sort of it's a sort of displaced aggression because they can't say that about the daily mail or the conservative party mm. right they can't say that about actually, true, yeah. actually powerful institutions actually sort of major disseminators of bullshit and fake news but they can say it about you know the you know the daily working man's companion or whatever you know some sort of tiny newspaper put out by a a a small sort of communist sect they'll be like oh yeah well you you know you're not a serious operation mate and it's like why do you try a bit of that bravery when you're talking about like actually powerful people um so yeah there's there's a deep problem in the way that uh impartiality is is kind of left to the internal journalistic processes of the BBC, where the pretense yeah. is that oh, we, we've actually got the necessary um, intellectual skills to do this very difficult work, where the reality is they've obviously got lobbyists from powerful interests sort of bullying them into doing what they want. 
Yeah, or, the, you know, they're just sort of operating in that same universe of ideas and sources, aren't they? So, um, yeah. yeah, like, the, 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 they're just they're surrounded by all these sticks and carrots that they just take for granted as being what politics is, right? And that's that's the environment in which they do their work. And that's actually, not only that, that's what they think their job is. I mean, we'll come to that with Peston in a moment. Before, like, we move on to that, I, I just wanted to mention sort of one other element that sort of picks out from these various BBC reports. I mean, the, the one of the things that I, I mean, I saw like um, Jim Watson doing a, a thread on that. I think you responded to, you know, like um, younger people aren't engaging as much with BBC programmes. The television, television viewers are all ageing. Young people are using a variety of sources. They tend to be really online and so on. It's just like I don't know why anyone's surprised by any of these findings, because they're all in line with every piece of research that's been done on this, and including like Ofcom's annual news consumption reports. But one of the big sort of findings there was to do with the way people are engaging with the news. And I, you know, I don't think we necessarily need to dwell on that too much because we've, we've we've covered a lot um, the sort of the shifts that are taking place yeah. away from broadcast towards tech. There yeah. was there was one report which was like uh, which was con- con- conducted by PwC. Which was looking, it was like an equalitative study. Shout out, did, to our, shout out to the, our, you know, our homies at PWC. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, this is so the first positive mention on the show, but I think we don't appreciate enough the good work that they do, do they? Um, in in, in like, you know, ensuring, it's very reasonable, I imagine. Yeah, um, in, exactly. Like not only in ensuring that all of our um, FTSE 500 companies are absolutely top notch, like you know. <laughs> <laughs> These are, in terms of research, and uh, they are the organic intellectuals of, of our ruling. Well, they're the gold standard, aren't they? They are the gold standard, and, I, and I salute them for that. Um, and I'm sure everyone else will feel the same way. Um, anyway, we don't know who specifically who wrote this at PwC, and I'm sure they're all lovely people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but they, anyway, they, they ran these uh, focus groups. Obviously, there weren't any academics available to run focus groups. <laughs> and... Um, what they did was they they, they spoke to uh, news consumers, um, i.e. your citizens, about uh, what they thought about the BBC. And a lot of it is, again, it's kind of reaffirming stuff that we know from um, Ofcom's usual research on news consumption, all those completely pointless uh, reports that the BBC puts out on attitudes to trust and accuracy and impartiality, or which, by the way, usually find that the BBC is slightly below the other broadcasters in terms of um, impartiality, but usually quite high on trust. So basically the overwhelming um, thing from this report was that people tend to trust the BBC on like breaking news and stuff like that. And I think the reason for that is 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 what you were mentioning earlier about the facts, because this comes back to this question of like literally what is happening and can we describe it accurately? That's actually where like facts and like those sort of narrow professional standards that people associate with the BBC or the New York Times has some value, right? So like but that that perfectly that makes perfect sense. But then in in parts of the report, you know, they say a few people um, were more mistrusting of the BBC in in one way or another. Generally, it's seen as accurate and um, trustworthy. But there were some people who raised objections about its uh, portrayal of Muslim and Islam um, internationally, you know, like so be like the coverage of terrorism, the way in which like Muslims tend to be associated with, you know, um, reactionary politics, aggressive practices, uh, political violence and the rest of it. I'm, I'm filling in some gaps there, I should say. And the other one was uh, 
the the coverage of knife crime the report also mentions so so basically there were there was a feeling amongst some of the interviewees that the bbc's treatment of of, of racism was pretty poor and there was also a mention of uh programs like uh question time you know platforming as it were the, these these far-right figures so there was discontent yeah. around that which which yeah. i thought was interesting you know that that had sort of filtered down into um, earlier that um that there was some um disquiet about about the BBC's proximity to the government. Yeah, yeah. Well, this this is the thing I was going to say, which which actually leads us um, into the, the next thing we we wanted to discuss was that um, so there there was there were people who thought the BBC was um, you know biased to the left or to the right. So you know on the one hand the right are saying the BBC is not giving um, Brexit enough of a run, and then on the other hand the left are saying it's you know hostile towards Corbyn. Um, you know we don't need to go into that today. But there was also the uh, our friends from PwC noted yeah. was yeah. a suspicion about the BBC's relationship with governments. So and they said it was slow to criticise the government and to call it to count. I'm quoting here um, yeah. due to being reliant on government for funding and its governance, which is interesting. Um, well, I think, you know, that, you know, I think that might that might be. I, I, we can't draw a simple causal line here, Tom. But I mean, that's very much been your your kind of thesis, hasn't it? From your from your kind of um, from your book onwards, the argument that it's not about so much about left or right wing bias; it's about st- structural dependence on um, on the state. Or on yeah. The, on so it's nice to see that sort of idea, um, yeah, ap- appearing in um, in. Think, what's interesting about it is as well, it's not vulnerable to the Oh, well, some people think it's too left wing. Some people think it's too right wing. So we must be doing something right. Which, by the way, by the way, there's I mean, this absolutely drives me mad. It absolutely drives me mad. But there is a quote. So there the quote the the report is arranged in like, um, you know, a summary of these various interviews. And there there is um, a man, an ABC one man from Brighton who says more or less exactly that. <laughs> and it said, you know, it has the quote, and then it's just like, uh, yeah, middle class man from Brighton. I was like, yeah, absolutely, you know, golden middle class man from Brighton opinion you've got there. Yeah. Really top notch. But yeah, um, no, you're right. I mean, uh, that, and, like, that's no one's going to say, no one's going to say, well, I think the BBC's too, who's too outspoken about the state, right? No yeah. one ever says that. No, no, no literally, no one says that. Yeah. I mean, actually, the, the one thing that people do sometimes say, actually, to to be fair, is that people say that on BBC Radio, um, the tone of engagement with politicians is not constructive, right? So that that sometimes the BBC take that as yeah. meaning, oh, we are too challenging of politicians or whatever. But actually, what people tend to mean, if you do qualitative research, is that you come out of it not really understanding what that politician was saying or what the issues were right. because they get shouted over, right? Yeah. So insofar as there's research that finds that the BBC, yeah, tends to be too combative, right. my sense is that that is more to do with a sort of tonal thing, you know, because yeah. they, the, the people, you just have John Humphreys who has actually well, have to you, left to today now. John Humphreys is retired. He's Tom, retired, no. sadly. Um, so we should do. Now, you know what he, he, he had his opinions on BBC. He's exposed the liberal bias at the BBC. He's blown it wide open. With 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 decades. 
He's, uh, he's blown the whistle now. He's um, he happens to have a uh, an autobiography out um, where he happens to mention that the BBC has a liberal bias, um, which was serialised in the Daily Mail. So if listeners are interested in in John's take on the issues on the show, other views from mine and Dan's are available. Actually, let's get John on. That would be amazing. John, be amazing. <laughs> John, come on, media tomorrow. I think we could we should Let's take some powerful hallucinogenic drugs and then interview him because <laughs> it would give him a sense. It would give him a sense of what it's like to be interviewed by him. Um, but um, I think like just cocaine would be ideal, wouldn't it? <laughs> I, well, I to, well, look, we we'll name our poison. I think I'm going to go for something a bit more magic mushroomy because I. <laughs> You want to get that sort of, sort of that where the fuck did that question? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Sort of yeah but you need the belligerence like, as well, how don't you? Someone, how could someone get like not like not the wrong end of the stick, but the yeah. wrong stick? In where has this where has this angle been plucked out of? <laughs> non, <laughs> That's a non-Euclidean angle. Like, no, that angle doesn't exist in nature. <laughs> um, now, before we leave the BBC, or yeah. we'll loop, we'll, and we'll probably loop. We'll, back. No, we will come back to the BBC a little bit. But yeah, um, go on. But before we move on from the Ofcom stuff, I think what you know, what was what's it, what's really kind of crucial to me, and which I think kind of calls back to the the stuff about the platforms, is like where are young people going? And overwhelmingly, they're going online, right? And 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 they're going onto the platforms for their for their news and current affairs. And like it brings back, it seems to me, like the abject failure of the BBC to adapt to the digital reality. Mm. Um, and the overwhelming need for a, a public option in the in the sort of pa- platform architecture, because like I don't I don't actually understand why these like these these platforms on which we're dependent for for our social lives, for our kind of political lives, um, why these why we should just assume that they should be run by American corporations. It's it's like a really weird kind of um failure of imagination on our part which is obviously compounded by the fact that their new partners in the legacy media the the platforms themselves and the politicians just on the bbc dan i mean i I think it'd be interesting to sort of figure out like internally exactly what happened in terms of the bbc's um engagement with us but one thing i would say which i think was probably crucial was that the bbc came over time as its kind of monopoly over the media got lessened uh, more and more you know, to think of itself as basically the public service provider in a in a news industry. And the, the once it starts thinking like that, you can see how it would be natural for the BBC to think, oh, yeah, we should be providing particular types of content to and putting it out there and, and supporting an, an industry. So their engagement with the platform seems to just sort of fit that model, you know, and also, the, the fact that they're not actually able to compete with um, outfits like Netflix. I mean, there's obviously there's a, a difference in terms of like resources or whatever, but they have that, you know, bullshit regulatory rule as well around like the 30 days or whatever, which, again, is all bound up with like this kind of ethos of, of neoliberal competitiveness and intellectual property laws. Yeah. So, you know, the, yeah. it was all the groundwork was all laid there. And. I think like we've only been able to piece this together a little bit, but I mean it's clear that there are people at the BBC who are ambitious and did think in the sort of terms that you're talking about. Yeah. But the the overarching culture there has been so moulded around that idea of the BBC should be um yeah, part of this broader private ecology, which is now dominated by these huge multinationals. I mean it's just a joke. But Actually, by the way, the other thing, Dan, is that there's a report that in that sort of 
collection of reports on the BBC's reach on social media as well, where it describes that the BBC, you know, the BBC has a huge following on Twitter and on Facebook or whatever. Yeah. You know, so they they're doing well on those platforms. Yeah. Um, and they're not losing advertising to them as such, but they are obviously losing legitimacy and they're losing their future audiences. I mean, that's the issue. That's uh, right. And, and I think. And I think, but I think this the failure of the BBC to to develop as a as it were as a um, as as a sort of social media actor in the broad sense of the term, like promoting sociability, promoting social engagement, promoting it's a terrible word, but promoting kind of community and so on. There were individuals at the BBC who wanted to do those things, and they thought very much in in those terms, right? And it, in some sense, it was an extension of the slightly paternalistic social democratic mission of the BBC uh, in its heyday. But these these people could just be squashed by um, the top management who were, as you say, completely sort of marinated in neoliberal ideas about mm. its and, you know, not not competing and not distorting private markets and all that as if as if any any of these feral motherfuckers in British private private capital were able to do any of this stuff. Um, but um, they were they could be squashed. Not could they be squashed, but no one knew they were being squashed. Um, and this speaks, I think, to the, the like the yeah, it's true. I mean, it's such it's such an insular organisation, isn't it? Yeah, it's just, it really it's is. So... And and it speaks to the urgent need to open up the BBC through you know political participation and democratisation along, along the lines that you you've argued for, because you just can't have an institution that's so central to our Shared, oh, yeah. it's, it's it's mad. I mean, you remember like in the six in the seventies, one of the first studies of the BBC, really good book actually by a sociologist called Tom Burns who died a few years ago. It was called um, Public Institution, Private World, and you know the reason it was called that was we had, we had this huge institution at the heart of life, which yeah. was an absolute lockdown. You know, and they they even tried to stop his um, study being published in its first iteration, um, and. Georgina Bond, who also did an anthropological study of the BBC, had a, a an article where she discussed the the lack of engagement she got from from the BBC. And yeah. you know, it's just a joke. Like when you see people like Rob Burley on Twitter with this kind of, you know, farcical gestures towards public engagement. Yeah. Um. You know, it's just got to change, and it's just amazing that they, you know, I don't know that. The, the self-confidence that they seem to, I mean, I suppose a lot of that is bluster, but like the the inertia there, I mean, going yeah. back to the Manchester affair, I mean, they must see that, like, you know, that the time's up for them on this particular well, you know, it, it, Like, it is a striking fact that there are absolutely no published photos of Auntie Beebe. Like... We don't know what she looks like. <laughs> we don't. Um, she's just the stuff of legend. She's the uh, stuff of legend. Yeah, until that, we until we have an interview with Auntie Beebe. Uh, I am um, sorry, my cat is mewing in the background here. At the um at the weekend, I took my son to the Horniman Museum in in South London, and they have this um beehive there, which is like glass on both sides. Oh, amazing. Spent actually ages trying to find the queen bee in this huge <laughs> bureaucratic <laughs> structure with all of the bees going back as a force. Like, yeah, it'll be in there. She's just gonna be slightly larger than the other bees, but there were like uh, hundreds and hundreds of them. It's, it's similar, you know, somewhere in there in, in the yeah. bureaucratic beehive of. Uh, <laughs> she's still there. Um, why doesn't she come out and speak? You know, why doesn't she say something about what's happened to the B to the BBC? Yeah. That's I why think- I want to know. 
She might be being held prisoner. Bro, come on the show, please. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, this is getting silly now. Okay, so we've been talking for quite a while now, and we haven't quite got on to the topic or what was going to be the main topic of the show today, which was everybody's favourite Tory, um, Peter Oborn, wrote a piece for Open Democracy that you should go and check out. Size all British journalists have become part of Johnson's fake news machine, which actually raises a lot of issues which we've already touched on already. But as we've gone so long, uh, what Dan and I thought we might do is splice the episode here and then we are put out the second half of our conversation where we're focused on that Oborn piece and the response to it in a second episode. But before we go, could you please like us and review us on whatever podcast provider you use? It could be iTunes or it could be one of the less evil ones. I've noticed that everybody does this on their podcast now. They harass their listeners and apparently... You know, I'm reliably told that this feeds into these evil algorithms that then means that uh, more people will listen, which I guess is probably be a good thing. So uh... otherwise, we'll have no choice. Tom is resisting this, but I would like to start reading out adverts for beds and <laughs> um, foods that you get are delivered to oh your door. Oh my God, it's the worst thing in podcasts where, like, you know, the podcast host, if you listen to like the more commercial podcasts, where the podcast host has to actually show an interest in yeah. the actual think, well, it's, you have to it's so it, demeaning. Integrate it into their, into their sort of um, editorial offering. Yeah. So I'll be like, Tom, it's interesting you say that um, <laughs> a lot of BBC coverage makes you feel a bit drowsy because with the new sleep tight technology on the <laughs> so anyway like a uh, travel sickness pills or something as well does uh, the mainstream media think <laughs> make you <think> <laughs> well have we got the solution for you and we've been driving around the country using these pills in our they effort to uh they work a treat campaign so, independent media oh god it's awful like yeah it's, re- it's really bad and i don't want to do it but if that's what it takes to make the show economically viable in a competitive market what choice do i have exactly all they need to do all these People need to, these hogs, these greedy content hogs that listen to us for free. All they yeah. need to do is just like and and subscribe and do whatever. Yeah, do what, do, do that thing, um, and you're just doing a, a little a little bit to save what's left of uh, Dan and mine's dignity, basically. <laughs> <laughs>